Welcome to the Confident Retirement Podcast. Is doing the most important things alone a good idea? How comfy are you with your choices when it comes to life's biggest decisions? What is real peace of mind with financial confidence and how can you get it? Chris Fleming and Mark Peachy are the founders of LPF Advisors in Sarasota, Florida. On the show, they bring together the best and brightest minds to share with you how to have a more confident financial picture. They empower listeners with simple, common sense and financial wisdom. And now, here are your hosts from LPF Advisors. I want to welcome everybody to the Confident Retirement Podcast brought to you by LPF Advisors. I'm your host, Chris Flaming, and today I'm happy to bring Charles Lamar to the program. His Chicago-based law firm helps individuals and families prepare estate and tax plans pursuant to their objectives with the company's signature value-based approach. Driven by a passion for faith, family, and friends, he's involved with the Charitable Estate Planning Institute and the Chicago High School for the Arts. Charlie, thanks for being here and welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. It's my pleasure to be here with you. Thank you. Good. We're going to have fun. So take me what led you to opening up your own practice? What was kind of the motivation and vision for that? Sure. Well, uh, I'm a perfect example of of John Lennon's uh, line that life is what happens to you while you're making other plans. Okay. Uh, So I started out as a lawyer and then uh, felt I was a small firm, father, son, and me, and felt that the resources were limited. And uh, people would come to me and ask me, so I'm thinking of becoming a lawyer, what should I major in? And I said, well, if I had to do it over again, I'd major in uh, accounting. And so my wife was familiar with this and she says, you know, if you really believe that, <laughs> you're not that old. <laughs> well, why don't you go back to school and get an accounting degree? <laughs> so I went back and my, my focus then started to change from the general practice of law to taxes and estate planning. Mm. And about that time, I had an opportunity to join a, a small bank, and they said, you need a little more beefing up on your estate planning, but we like the fact that you've got a general <laughs> experience. <laughs> and so I went to this bank and started to change a little more on estate planning. And then <laughs> I had a friend who was the head of development at a not-for-profit, called me about setting up a program for plan giving at uh, Lurie Children's, now Lurie Children's. And um, I remember telling my wife when I met with him for the first time about this position, I said, you know, I hope he doesn't ask me because I'm really happy where I'm at. Well, the first place he takes me to is the neonatal intensive care unit. And by the time he was done with me, I was afraid he wouldn't ask me. So then that started me on a track of of plan giving. And then I felt I was becoming too much of a fundraiser, wasn't using my legal skills. And there was a bank in Chicago that at the time was, was looking for, as he said, I'm looking for an attorney who has trust and plan giving experience. And as I told my wife, he's got to take me. There aren't that many people like that out there. <laughs> and now, of course, there are, there are many more. So I was uh, at the bank for 18 years. And then when it became time to retire, I didn't want to retire. Mm. And so I decided, well, you know, I'll, I'll start my own practice. And fortunately for me, the bank needed someone to do some, some legal work. And so that was my first client. 
And then I was introduced to Eddie Thompson and Thompson Associates and charitable estate planning. And it was a a great match because I always felt that I, I tried to lead with values and the estate plan was representative of your values. And so I've been with uh, Thompson Associates as an independent rep, in addition to my, to my private law practice. And I like to think that the two uh, complement one another because I can bring my experience in private practice to my Thompson clients, and I can bring my Thompson experience with my private practice. Okay. So how do, how do you go about discovering the values of the clients that you work with? You What's the process you use, or how do you do that? You talk to them. It's conversations. It's opening up. Uh, what are you interested in? What gives your life meaning? I always remember there was a gentleman by the name of Rushward Kidder. And uh, when I was at the bank, he was the executive director of the Institute on Global Ethics. And he said, he said, not for profit level. He said, there is a descending, it's, it's an inverted pyramid. And there is a descending order of consensus. And he said, so even if before you agree on your goals, you want to agree on values. Mm. He says, and then you have values, you have goals, plans, and then tactics. He said, so as you disagree on, on plans and tactics, you come back to your goals. If you disagree on goals, you come back to values. And I don't intend to upset anybody's political sensitivities, <laughs> but his example was Ronald Reagan. He said, Ronald Reagan was the so-called Teflon president. And he said, why was that? He said, he had you on values. It's morning again in America. So when things came up like Iran-Contra and the like, you came back to values because you, you agreed with him on the values. He said, on the other hand, George H.W. Bush acknowledged that he had problems with this vision thing. He said, so what do you remember him for? Read my lips, no new taxes. And when he had to go back on that, that was a plan. That was a tactic. And when he had to go back on that, you didn't know what his values were. You didn't know what his goals were. And so I've always learned, you know, keep the discussion on values. And the way to do that is to actually talk to your client about it. Find out what's of difference, what matters to them. It's not part of billable hours. (laughs) That's why Mm -hmm. some people don't like to get into uh, estate planning. Mm -hmm. I also think that it goes to the difference between being a trusted advisor and an expert. To me, the trusted advisor is there. They're involved in the dialogue. They know about the family. They know about the client. They know what's important to them. As opposed to an expert, an expert's kind of like the Lone Ranger. Comes in, solves the problem, and then leaves. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But you want to be a trusted advisor because to me, that's the highest status that you can get as, as an advisor. Yeah, and as so, part of that conversation is, is showing your own interests, showing your own what's important to you and how does it match and listening. Yeah. When you were describing that, it gave me goosebumps. Um, just by coincidence, that's how we structure our relationships with clients where we're discovering what's most important to them. It's a values conversation. Then we talk about what their goals are. Then we, then we can talk about let's put a plan together and then what do we need to implement and we have to start at the top. You can't start at the bottom um, because those things might not jive up if you're mixing them up or in, they're in the wrong order. So that that's great. Exactly. Yeah. What do you like yep. best about your business right now, Charlie? What most excites you about your business right now? It may sound corny, but helping people, the aha moments when they say, oh, gee, I never thought of that. I also think that in terms of, I'd like to think that 
good part of my practice is encouraging charitable giving. Mm. And one way to do that mm-hmm. is to, my favorite line is, our intro is, if I could show you a way, would you be interested? Mm. Who wouldn't be interested? Whether or not they, they take it up or not, who yeah. wouldn't be interested in learning that? So it's helpful to maximize their efforts, maximize their assets rather. And then the other thing is, I think that everybody would like to be remembered. Mm-hmm. And maybe you don't have the wherewithal to be remembered yourself. But if you can help people who do, and in some small way, then, then you're a part of that. And then I also think it's, it's very ennobling to be a part of something bigger than yourself. And I think, you know, legacy to family, legacy to charity, I think that's the most satisfying thing. But I think the main thing is that you made a difference. You helped me. If it hadn't been for you, I wouldn't have been able to do this. Right. Yeah. That you may be, them. you know, selfish, but. Yeah, no, but their yeah. life path was different and other people benefited from it in addition to them. Right. Do you think there's a big misconception that people have about either your line of work or the type of estate planning that you do commonly with, with clients? So from a, like, let's say from a charitable giving standpoint, are there some common misconceptions that people have? Yeah, that you have to be wealthy to be a philanthropist. <laughs> okay. So expand you don't have on that. to be. Okay, so what I like to do as part of my estate planning process is run the numbers. So here's what you have. Here's what your current estate plan is, whether it's written down or whether it's done by state law. And you die tomorrow, this is what happens. And I have a number of folks with very modest estates who are shocked, shocked, I tell you, <laughs> to find out that when they die, there may well be income taxes due on their estate. And I say, oh, no, no, I, got no, I don't have a taxable estate. Yeah, you may not have an estate tax, but if you've got a retirement plan, <laughs> mm-hmm. you've got a taxable estate. And I run an example where a person has a $600,000 estate, 200000 of it is, is an IRA. She's going to lose you know, 12% of her estate to taxes. And if she has any charitable intent, that's the asset to use. The other thing is that share with people, and I I probably reflect that this is with my daughter. You know, I've told my daughter, if you can't live on 90% of your mom's and my estate, I don't know how you're going to live on 100% of it. Right. And I was very pleased when she said, I'm not counting on anything from you two. (laughs) You guys paid for my education. (laughs) We're cool. Yeah, that's the, answer. that's the answer we want. Yeah, and it's like, well, the other thing too, you know, I used to use the example that, you know, that, that there was a study that of all the women who turned 60 in the 2000s, I said 40% would live to be 100. I said, now my wife's in that category. So what does that mean, aside bringing a smile to her face? Well, should I follow form and I, and I leave everything to my wife and my wife is in that group that lives to be a hundred. When she dies, our daughter's going to be 60. He said, now, whatever my wife may leave her, it's not going to make a significant difference in her life. Mm-hmm. And so what is she going to do with it? Buy a new hip. And so my daughter tells her friends, my parents told me, look, 
We can buy you a new hip when you're 60, or we can pay for your education and leave yeah. you debt free yeah. when you're in your 20s. And she's right. like, education, new hip. She yeah. says, I took the education. Yeah, yeah. Who wants to go through the new hip thing? So I'm curious, tell me about one of your most satisfying client experiences. So, you know, don't reveal anything from a confidentiality standpoint, sure. but I'm curious, like, you know, somebody you worked with was very satisfying, the problems they were facing, how you helped them. I think one of my proudest success stories is that when I was at a bank and there was a gentleman who was selling his company and um, they had asked him, do you have any charitable intent? Nah. Do you want to save taxes? Yes. Do you want to save on capital gains taxes? Yes. And so ran the numbers and showed him what would happen if he died tomorrow. He looked at it and he said, I'm paying too much in taxes and my kids are getting too much. So in talking to him, we found out that he wasn't concerned about enhancing his children's lifestyle as much as he was about putting assets in their pocket because like a good many <laughs> blended families, wasn't too wild about the in-laws, <laughs> mm -hmm. wasn't too wild about the spouses. And so we showed him a number of ways and he, he created a number of, of charitable remainder trusts. Mm. So much so that he actually exceeded his AGI limitation mm. for that year. And he said, I like these things. Didn't even know what he had. These things. I like these things because it got the kids' hands out of my pockets. Mm -hmm. And now they were looking to the trust. They were looking to... How is this trust invested? How am I? I know I've, I've got this set sum of money. So there was a trickle down, if you will, to doing this. A couple of years later, we're talking and he says to me, you know, I think I want to do three more of these things, these things again. I want to do three more of these things for my godchildren. And I said, but you know, um, you're still working off your tax carry forward, credit carry forward for your charitable deduction. He said, I don't care. I like the way these things work. <laughs> so he went from uh, you know, being totally tax focused to looking at how these things impacted the lives of other people, mm. as well as you know, giving them financial independence, if you will. One of the beneficiaries was a charitable fund that is now being used to perpetuate his memory and bring the family together to decide how grandpa's pop's money is going to be used for charitable purposes. And it gave them, broadened their horizons, if you will, mm -hmm. to realize that they're in a narrow world. They've been very fortunate in terms of what their family was able to provide for them. There's a lot of more families out there that aren't, and it broadened their focus. And so that's one of the stories that, that I'm proudest of in terms of giving back to the community. That's and, great, Charlie. No, that's leaving that legacy. That's fantastic. Yeah. So yeah. I'm curious. You have a lot of life experience. Um, I'm curious to learn about maybe your first memory or experience with money, you personally. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> My first experience with money. So I didn't get an allowance, <laughs> but I would get a dollar a day for lunch. <laughs> and I quickly learned <laughs> that if I spent less on lunch, <laughs> I had my own spending money. 
And uh, my family was, I mean, my dad had to borrow a car to drive me down to Champaign for college because he was afraid our car wouldn't make it. Mm. So that kind of taught me about, you know, uh, budgeting, limited income, taking it to this day. It's a shock that I can, I can, I remember, I never forget <laughs> being a lawyer, first lawyer, first paycheck and passing a storefront and there was a tie I liked. And for the first time in my life, I could go into that store and buy a tie <laughs> and not worry about how much, how much did it cost. Now yeah. ties much back then weren't as expensive, but those were my, I, remembering that A, it was limited and it was a finite resource. Yes. And B, I had to count on myself yeah. to get it done. Great. So in, in your practice then, have you seen either the positive or the negative effects of wealth when you're dealing with families going through life events, like a death or something like that? And what do you feel like you can do or what can be done to kind of prevent frustration or fighting or bad feelings when it comes to those things? Talk. I think share. I think that, you know, I, I tell the story that ask your clients to who do you attribute your success. Mm. And nine times out of 10, they'll say their parents. Mm. And it wasn't because the parents passed on any great wealth to them, because usually they're far wealthier than their parents. It wasn't because their parents passed on any particular business acumen to them, because in a lot of instances, they're doing stuff that their parents couldn't even envision their kids would be doing. But what it comes back to is that their parents passed on values, you know, a framework upon which to live by. And so these folks demonstrate to you that it's okay to pass on values without wealth. I worked in a trust department for 18 years. We saw evidence every day about what a disaster it was to pass on wealth without values. Mm -hmm. And I found that philanthropy is one way mm -hmm. to pass on wealth and values. But the other thing too is, is, you know, talking, talking to the children, letting them know, you know, I go back to my discussion with my daughter. It's, it's not because I love you any less that I'm giving you not all of our estate. My mom, your mom and I are not giving you all of our estate. But we want you to, to some sense, I mean, everybody wants to make it a little bit easier for their children. But as Warren Buffett said, you know, a secret to a good estate, a good estate plan is to uh, enable your children to do whatever they want, but not so much that they won't do anything. Bang, right. And so, you know, I trust you. I don't think you need all this. Uh, if you want it, you can get it. And, and similarly, what can you do? What can you do with it? And then the other thing, too, is, you know, um, it, it's having those discussions up front. I've been in situations where it shouldn't all be equal. Some kids are doing better than others. And it's not necessarily, you know, equitable does not mean equal. And so having those discussions and with the gentleman I referenced earlier, when he was leaving, you know, what he did, we encouraged him, sit down with your kids, tell them what you're doing and why you're doing it. And I think it helped in the long run that they, here's the reason. I may not agree with it, but here's the reason. Yeah, that's so insightful. And I'm sure that comes from years of working with people. And what you said earlier about seeing where when there is no values there, but you pass on the wealth, where that can just be a recipe for disaster. 
Right. I, I've never really heard it that way. I think that's great. Thank you, Charlie, for sharing that. So what do you think is your, your biggest life accomplishment so far, either personally or professionally, or both? For a number of years, I worked at a bank that um, I was the head of our charitable group. Mm-hmm. And we had a trust and a um, co-trustee was lamenting the fact that there wasn't that much, there was no diversity on the stage of the Chicago Symphony. And um, so I suggest, I said, well, maybe we can do something about that. So <clears throat> over the course of a couple of years, we put together what was called the Diversity Working Group. And this was comprised of the various art schools in Chicago. And the goal was, what can we do to address and encourage diversity at the arts organizations of Chicago. So after two years, we came to the conclusion that what Chicago needed was a high school devoted to the arts. That in the morning, there would be academics, and in the afternoon, it would be arts-based. We took that idea to the head of the Chicago Community Trust, who said, you know, I like this. Let me introduce you to, at that time, the head of the Chicago Board of Education. Let's set up a meeting, see if this is something that we can do. So with that, we had a civic celebration to announce the formation of this and then had um, a call, if you will, for board members. We put together a board and after another three, four years, we finally opened up uh, the Chicago High School for the Arts which is the only public school in Chicago that is dedicated to arts. And the other thing, too, is you learn that it's not all in front of the camera. It's not all on stage, that there's a whole vast sum of arts-related vocations. So the school has been in existence for over 10 years. Many of the kids, most of the kids go on to college. They're first generation they may not be going into the arts, but that arts background helps them in what they're doing. A lot of these kids are children that, that don't have professional training, and yet they get it in the school. And so I would say as, as I look back, you know, I had a small part <laughs> in getting that done. And once again, you know, children years ago, <laughs> years from now, are not going to know who I was. But, you know, I always say there was a governor of, of Illinois, uh, John Altgeld, and he wanted to be the senator from Illinois. At that time, uh, the Haymarket riots came out, and he looked at it, and he, they asked him to, for pardons, and he was advised that if he granted the pardons, it was political suicide. He would, you know, have no future in politics because it was such an a unpopular decision, but he looked at it and he said, no, these people were convicted, not on the evidence, but based on their beliefs. And so he gave him a pardon and he kind of died, you know, forgotten. There was a poet, Vachel Lindsay, and he wrote a poem called The Eagle is Forgotten. And the last line is, dream on, O brave-hearted, O wise man who kindled the flame. Far better to live in mankind than it is to live in a name. Far, far better to live in mankind than it is to live in a name. And so I tell my clients and I console myself with the fact it's far better to live in mankind than it is to live in a name. And what I see is happening in this high school, you know, nobody's going to know who I am, but 
somehow I had a little part in making a difference. And once again, you know, it's ennobling to be a part of, of something bigger than yeah. yourself. You're also part of something called the Charitable Estate Planning Institute. Yes, thank can you. you yeah. Can you tell me about that and sure. expand that on that? Is a, it's an annual uh, seminar that is um, conducted uh, in Nashville. And unlike other so-called charitable giving seminars, this does not focus solely on so-called planned giving, uh, split interest charitable giving. This is a real deep dive <laughs> into how does charitable giving fit within the overall estate plan. So we'll talk about the nerdy subjects, if you will, the overall estate structure, the overall income tax structure, as well as getting into a deep dive into uh, the charitable giving arrangements. The other thing really like about it is, is that it's, it's concentrated. So there's a lot of discussion you know, before people going out for lunch, people going out for dinner, people going out for drinks. So a big feedback. And then there's also these folks then then become a resource. Hmm. So I think what, what is very satisfying is not just development officers that come to this conference, but it's other professional advisors, such as attorneys, such as accountants. And it's, it's a coming together of the, of the various estate planning professions. And can't help but think, you know, we started out, I think there were 15 people at the first one, and now it's, it's well over 100. And before the pandemic, we actually had a close off attendance. So we caught a nerve, if you will. Uh, the other thing, if I can give a plug, <laughs> the other thing that I'm, I'm particularly proud of is Eddie Thompson suggested that uh, we put together a book called a Message from the Masters. And what we did was we, we went out and surveyed 20 planned giving professionals, charitable giving professionals. And we asked them to give their, their three favorite stories of how a charitable gift made a difference in their life as well as, you know, life of others. And what I'm particularly proud of is that all proceeds from the book go to fund scholarships okay. for, for new plan giving officers to attend a plan giving seminar of their choice. And so that's another way of giving back to the community and raising the profession, if you will. Mm-hmm. So what are you going forward? What do you think is your biggest opportunity in your practice, your biggest opportunity in your business right now? Well, our death is an appointment we all must keep. <laughs> and uh, I used to have a, a board member who said, I never saw a hearse with a luggage rack. <laughs> so it's estate planning. And I think people are taking a more sophisticated approach to it. When I was a young attorney, it was everything to my spouse. And then upon my spouse's death, everything to my children. I think people are taking a more broad-based look. I think people are always going to need this opportunity. So I, I think that it's the other thing too, from a purely mercenary standpoint, the law is always changing in this area. And yeah. so there's opportunity and people are looking for that advice and people are looking for, as I go back to the trusted advisor. And if yeah. you do a good job, that's to me, that's one of the most, like anything else, you know, when people come back, that's, you know, so, I mean, I'm, I'm very proud of working with one family. Now I've, Worked with the, you know, through the father, introduced to the mother, 
through the the father passed away, now introduced to the children, and I'm you know it's, it's th- three generations <laughs> of estate planning. So I think it's something that everybody needs. I think everybody thinks about it. I, I talked about that. You know, the people estate plan for four reasons. What if I die too soon? What if I live too long? What happens to those people I care about? And then how will I be remembered? Mm-hmm. And a lot of people are looking at that part. And I think, you know, as Lyndon Johnson said, what's convincing is conviction. <laughs> and uh, so you share that and it's very reassuring and it's, it's ennobling too. Yeah. So on the flip side of that, what do you see as your biggest challenge or obstacle in your business right now or your practice? I think that I don't need an estate plan. <laughs> you know, you know that I think that, I mean, I, I tell the story. I, I had a client that I, I tried to acquaint him with the benefits of one estate planning arrangement that to me, based on his estate, it was a no-brainer. It's a generation-skipping trust. It had nothing to do with charity. And uh, he was reluctant to do it. And um, we're having lunch one day, and I find out that he had there was a thing used to be called an accelerated charitable remainder trust, mm. which the IRS pounced on because it, it just, it was a tax fraud, tax sham. And I found out he had one. <laughs> and I thought, you know, you're so conservative. <laughs> you have this. And then I learned, it demonstrated to me, he was more concerned about income tax savings than he was about estate tax savings because he wasn't going to be around <laughs> for the estate tax. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that everybody needs needs an estate plan. And as I tell folks, you know, my, one of my favorite movies is uh, Magnificent Seven. In the original one, there's a line where the townspeople come to Yul Brenner and they say, you know, our, our village is poor, but we intend to pay you for your work. And so they put on the bed the dollars and jewelry and the like, trinkets. And they said, it isn't much, but it's everything. And Yul Brenner says, I've been offered great sums of money for my work, but I've never been offered everything. And that's what I would like to convey to clients. Whatever it is, <laughs> it's everything that you have. It's the sum total of what you've worked for. And do you just want to let it dissipate? Wouldn't you want to have some purpose and have some? And the other thing, too, is, is you know, talk to about that one of the things I go through, you know, imagine you had a large sum of money that you couldn't spend on yourself. Who would you give it to? When would you give it to them? What would you say when you gave it to them? How would you give it to them? And then I ask, or I tell them, I said, that's what's going to happen when you die. There's going to be a large sum of money that you can't spend on yourself. You're going to have to give it to somebody. I'll bet you you spent more time in the previous five minutes thinking about how it would get to those folks than is reflected in your estate plan. Wouldn't it be so much nicer for everybody to talk about, this is what I hope you would do with it, or just, you know, thanks. That's why I'm giving it to you. It broadens your perspective Mm -hmm. and say that I don't have to, maybe my family doesn't need that much. There's other things that I can do. Maybe there's a teacher who was instrumental in my life. And I'd like to somehow honor the memory of that teacher or, you know, a mentor or something, you know, that it's honoring other people as well. And I think that's, that's the biggest frustration. Oh, I don't need, I don't need an estate plan. Yeah. So Charlie, you've shared a lot with us today and I really appreciate your candor and honesty and opening up. Um, If people wanted to learn more about you, 
or contact you, how would they do that? Well, uh, one of two ways. Uh, contact me by email, uh, cslamar at charleslamar.com. Contact me through Thompson and Associates. Uh, you know, they have a website and always happy to talk. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for sharing today. Charlie, I want to thank you for being with us Thank here. you. Yeah, thank you've you. been an insightful guest and it's been a true pleasure to interview you. Thank you. And I want much. to thank all of our listeners for tuning in to the Confident Retirement Podcast brought to you by LPF Advisors, where we're raising the retirement confidence of everyday people to another level, one show at a time. Thanks for tuning in and we will see you next week. You've been listening to the Confident Retirement Podcast with Chris and Mark from LPF Advisors. For more information on them and retiring confidently, please visit lpfadvisors.com. If your ears are pleased and your mind is now at ease, do share the program with your friends and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.